Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, my fellow Americans, and happy Lunar New Year. I'm Stacey Abrams, and I'm honored to join the conversation about the state of our union. Growing up, my family went back and forth between lower middle class and working class. Yet even when they came home weary and bone tired, my parents found a way to show us all who we could be. My librarian mother taught us to love learning. 
My father, a shipyard worker, put in overtime and extra shifts, and they made sure we volunteered to help others. Later, they both became United Methodist ministers, an expression of the faith that guides us. These were our family values, faith, service, education, and responsibility. Now, we only had one car, so sometimes my dad had to hitchhike and walk long stretches during the 30-mile trip home from the shipyards. One rainy night, my mom got worried. We piled in the car and went out looking for him, and we eventually found my dad making his way along the road, soaked and shivering in his shirt sleeves. When he got in the car, my mom asked if he'd left his coat at work. He explained that he'd given it to a homeless man he'd met on the highway. When we asked why he'd given away his only jacket, my dad turned to us and said, I knew when I left that man he'd still be alone, but I could give him my coat because I knew you were coming for me. Our power and strength as Americans lives in our hard work and our belief in more. My family understood firsthand that while success is not guaranteed, we live in a nation where opportunity is possible. But we do not succeed alone. In these United States, when times are tough, we can persevere because our friends and neighbors will come for us. Our first responders will come for us. It is this mantra, this uncommon grace of community that has driven me to become an attorney, a small business owner, a writer, and most recently, the Democratic nominee for governor of Georgia. My reason for running was simple. I love our country and its promise of opportunity for all. And I stand here tonight because I hold fast to my father's credo. Together, we are coming for America, for a better America. Just a few weeks ago, I joined volunteers to distribute meals to furloughed federal workers. They waited in line for a box of food and a sliver of hope since they hadn't received paychecks in weeks. Making livelihoods of our federal workers a pawn for political games is a disgrace. The shutdown was a stunt, engineered by the President of the United States, one that defied every tenet of fairness and abandoned not just our people, but our values. For seven years, I led the Democratic Party in the Georgia House of Representatives. I didn't always agree with the Republican speaker or governor, but I understood that our constituents didn't care about our political parties, they cared about their lives. So when we had to negotiate criminal justice reform or transportation or foster care improvements, the leaders of our state didn't shut down. We came together and we kept our word. It should be no different in our nation's capital. We may come from different sides of the political aisle, but our joint commitment to the ideals of this nation cannot be negotiable. Our most urgent work is to realize Americans' dreams of today and tomorrow, to carve a path to independence and prosperity that can last a lifetime. Children deserve an excellent education from cradle to career. We owe them safe schools and the highest standards, regardless of zip code. Yet this White House responds timidly while first graders practice active shooter drills and the price of higher education grows ever steeper. From now on, our leaders must be willing to tackle gun safety measures and face the crippling effect of educational loans. 
to support educators and invest what is necessary to unleash the power of America's greatest minds. In Georgia and around the country, people are striving for a middle class where a salary truly equals economic security. But instead, families' hopes are being crushed by Republican leadership that ignores real life or just doesn't understand it. Under the current administration, far too many hardworking Americans are falling behind, living paycheck to paycheck, most without labor unions to protect them from even worse harm. The Republican tax bill rigged the system against working people. Rather than bringing back jobs, plants are closing, layoffs are looming, and wages struggle to keep pace with the actual cost of living. We owe more to the millions of everyday folks who keep our economy running, like truck drivers forced to buy their own rigs, farmers caught in a trade war, small business owners in search of capital, and domestic workers serving without labor protections. Women and men who could thrive if only they had the support and freedom to do so. We know bipartisanship could craft a 21st century immigration plan, but this administration chooses to cage children and tear families apart. Compassionate treatment at the border is not the same as open borders. President Reagan understood this. President Obama understood this. Americans understand this. And Democrats stand ready to effectively secure our ports and borders. But we must all embrace that from agriculture to healthcare to entrepreneurship, America is made stronger by the presence of immigrants, not walls. And rather than suing to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, as Republican attorneys general have, our leaders must protect the progress we've made and commit to expanding health care and lowering costs for everyone. My father has battled prostate cancer for years. To help cover the cost, I found myself sinking deeper into debt, because while you can defer some payments, you can't defer cancer treatment. In this great nation, Americans are skipping blood pressure pills, forced to choose between buying medicine or paying rent. Maternal mortality rates show that mothers, especially black mothers, risk death to give birth. And in 14 states, including my home state, where a majority want it, our leaders refuse to expand Medicaid, which could save rural hospitals, save economies, and save lives. We can do so much more. Take action on climate change. Defend individual liberties with fair-minded judges. But none of these ambitions are possible without the bedrock guarantee of our right to vote. Let's be clear. Voter suppression is real. From making it harder to register and stay on the rolls, to moving and closing polling places, to rejecting lawful ballots, we can no longer ignore these threats to democracy. While I acknowledge the results of the 2018 election here in Georgia, I did not and we cannot accept efforts to undermine our right to vote. That's why I started a nonpartisan organization called Fair Fight to advocate for voting rights. This is the next battle for our democracy, one where all eligible citizens can have their say about the vision we want for our country. We must reject the cynicism that says allowing every eligible vote to be cast and counted is a power grab. 
Americans understand that these are the values our brave men and women in uniform and our veterans risk their lives to defend. The foundation of our moral leadership around the globe is free and fair elections, where voters pick their leaders, not where politicians pick their voters. In this time of division and crisis, we must come together and stand for and with one another. America has stumbled time and again on its quest towards justice and equality. But with each generation, we have revisited our fundamental truths, and where we falter, we make amends. We fought Jim Crow with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, yet we continue to confront racism from our past and in our present, which is why we must hold everyone from the highest offices to our own families accountable for racist words and deeds and call racism what it is, wrong. America achieved a measure of reproductive justice in Roe v. Wade, but we must never forget it is immoral to allow politicians to harm women and families to advance a political agenda. We affirmed marriage equality, and yet the LGBTQ community remains under attack. So even as I am very disappointed by the president's approach to our problems, I still don't want him to fail. But we need him to tell the truth and to respect his duties and respect the extraordinary diversity that defines America. Our progress has always been found in the refuge, in the basic instinct of the American experiment, to do right by our people. And with a renewed commitment to social and economic justice, we will create a stronger America together. Because America wins by fighting for our shared values against all enemies, foreign and domestic. That is who we are. And when we do so, never wavering, the state of our union will always be strong. Thank you, and may God bless the United States of America. Hi, everyone. George Stephanopoulos here. Thanks for checking out the ABC News YouTube channel. If you'd like to get more videos, show highlights, and watch... President Obama has failed black people. Now, before I go any further, I want to say that this...
medical developments related to the pandemic. Here to discuss them once again, CBS News medical contributor, Dr. David Agus, who joins us from Los Angeles. Doctor, good morning. Uh, 250 million Americans now impacted by these social distancing guidelines. How long will it be before we understand or realize how effective these guidelines have been? You know, there's a delay, obviously. There's an incubation period of the virus, two to nine days, and then the virus itself has a course of several weeks. Testing in the United States still isn't where we need to have it in the big cities. And so we look at hospitalization rates, and I think they're going where they should start to level off over the next week or so in many of the major affected cities now. What we're worried about are the next wave cities that were alluded to earlier in the show. And then again, there'll be a lag between intervention when we all stay inside social distance to when we see an effect on the virus. Doctor, there's been a shift in the guidance on wearing masks as we've talked about here um, on this broadcast. What, what should people know right now about covering their faces in public? They need to know they have to do it. I mean, I, this is something that's imperative. When you breathe on a mirror, those are droplets. And if you go outside and you're asymptomatic, and remember, people are asymptomatic before they get symptoms, uh, before the virus, and they're also can be asymptomatic the whole course of the virus. You breathe, those droplets can spread. You wear a homemade mask of cloth, you can stop that and save other people and shorten the duration of the virus in this country. We all have to play our part. You know, that is one of the ways, Dr. Agus, that you can help prevent the spread. And we're learning that about 25% of the people who are uh, spreading this may be asymptomatic right now that have the coronavirus. How's that uh, affecting how we are approaching treating and going after this disease? Well, I mean, that unfortunately is the difficult part with this virus is some people have minimal to no symptoms at all and they're contagious. And when they go out, they don't mean it because um, they don't think they're sick, but they go shopping, they stop and talk to somebody, that can spread the virus and then it keeps spreading. If the virus keeps spreading, our, our period of being inside will be prolonged. We really all have to work together on this. And I know it seems overkill, but everybody needs to stay inside. And when you do go out for necessities, please wear a mask. One of the things that we've talked about with you throughout the weeks is the idea of treatments and the approach to this. Technology is playing a role. What can you tell us about where we are in regards to that right now? Well, yesterday was a big step up. The Secretary of Health and Human Services, uh, Azar, announced that a new database put together by Oracle was launched. And every doctor in the country will register a patient now before starting treatment. And then if the patient's outpatient, he or she will get an email every day and be able to update what's going on with their treatment. So we will know what drugs work well, when to use them, and who to use them in given time. I mean, it's very exciting that we're going to collect data and every patient will be part of the cure. And we're all going to help together. The data, uh, the website for this is covid19.oracle.com. Every doctor, please go there and register before you, reg you put patients on medications because we have to learn from every experience so we can all get better. We have to be patient as well seems to be the lesson for all of us in this. Dr. David Agus, thank you very much. We turn now to Dr. Anthony Fauci, the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at NIH. Dr. Fauci, thank you for what you're doing and thank you for making time for us. Good to be with you, Margaret. We heard from the president that there will be a lot of death in the coming weeks. Dr. Burks said it's not the time to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy. What should Americans be preparing for? 
Well, this is going to be a bad week, Margaret, unfortunately. If you look at the projection of the curves, of the kinetics of the curves, we're going to continue to see an escalation. Uh, also, we should hope that within a week, uh, maybe a little bit more, we'll start to see a flattening out of the curve and coming down. Um, the mitigation that we're talking about that you just mentioned is absolutely key to the success of that. So on the one hand, things are going to get bad, and we need to be prepared for that. It is going to be shocking to some. It certainly is, 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 is really disturbing to see that, but that's what's going to happen before it turns around. So just buckle down, continue to mitigate, continue to do the physical separation, because we've got to get through this week that's coming up, because it is going to be a bad week. Are you saying, Doctor, that despite the deaths that we may see, that mitigation is working and that you do have this outbreak yes. under control? Uh, I will not say we have it under control, Margaret. That would be a false statement. We are struggling to get it under control, and that's the issue that's at hand right now. The thing that's important is that what you see is increases in new cases, which then start to flatten out. But the end uh, result of that, you don't see for days, if not weeks, down the pike. Because as the, as the cases go down, then you get less hospitalizations, less intensive care, and less death. So even though you're getting an, uh, a really improvement in that the number of new cases are starting to flatten, the deaths will lag by, you know, one or two weeks or more. So we need to be prepared that even though it's clear that mitigation is working, we're still going to see that tail off of deaths. So the first thing we want to look for is to see on a daily basis are the number of new cases starting to stabilize. We've seen that in Italy. You just mentioned that correctly. We're going to hopefully be seeing that in New York very soon. And that's the first sign of that plateau and coming down. So when Governor Cuomo says we're, New York is not yet at the apex, what does that actually mean? And, and what happens on the other side of that apex? Yeah, what the governor is saying is that we are still going to see an increase. The curves that we show at the conferences often is that the epidemic curve goes up and it hits the top a bit and then it starts coming down. So what Governor Cuomo was saying is that we haven't yet reached that peak. And when you do, you'll start to see a bit of a flattening and come down. So where we are right now is really approaching that apex. And that's why what he's saying and what we're saying is that this next week is going to look bad because we're still not yet at that apex. And I think within a week, eight days or nine days or so, we hopefully are going to see that turnaround. You have flagged that you see this virus now spreading in the developing world and communities where people don't really have the luxuries that we have of working at home. What does that mean for the risk of reinfection here in the United States? Well, you bring up a very good point, Margaret. Unless we get this globally under control, there's a very good chance that it will assume a seasonal nature in the sense that even if we, and, and, I, and I hope it's not just if, but when, we get it down to the point where it really is at a very low level, we need to be prepared that since it unlikely will be completely eradicated from the planet, that as we get into next season, we may see the beginning of a resurgence. And that's the reason why we're pushing so hard in getting our preparedness much better than it was, but importantly, pushing on a vaccine 
and doing clinical trials for therapeutic interventions so that hopefully, if in fact we do see that resurgence, we will have interventions that we did not have in the beginning of the situation that we're in right now. So it, you said yesterday that there are three things you think this country needs to have in place uh, before some of these restrictions are pulled back. The ability to test, to isolate, and to do contact tracing. How close are we to meeting those requirements you laid out? We're not 100% there yet, but the people who are responsible for getting these tests out there, it, it's very clear that we are much, much better off than we were in the sense that in the next week or two, we'll have an extraordinary amount more capability of doing the kinds of testing that's essential. Because testing is not only important to be able to identify individual cases, isolate them in contact tracing, but we really do need to get a feel for what the penetrance of this infection is in society. That becomes critical when you plan to start to get back to normal or at least take those first steps to getting back to normal. You have to know what's out there. You have to know what you're dealing with. So testing becomes even more important than what we've been speaking about in the past. Do you wear a mask when you're not on television? Um, well, you know, my, my life is, is, is pretty different. I, I, I stay six feet away from anybody that I can. If I go out, which I really don't do very much because of, of, of the, my life as it is now, Margaret, I would and do if you go to a situation where you don't have control over that six-foot distance, that you wear a mask. In fact, my wife just went out to get us some food for the, for the morning, and she doesn't wear a mask in the house or when we go out and run. But when she gets into a situation, as I would, where you don't have
Don't give up. Don't allow it to happen. If there's a concrete wall in front of you, go through it, go over it, go around it, but get to the other side of that wall. That is a clip of Donald Trump giving a commencement address in 2004 talking about walls and getting around them. The Daily Show dug that up last night. Good morning. Welcome to Morning Joe. This is Thursday, January 10th. I'm Willie Geist, alongside Washington anchor for BBC World News America, Caddy Kay, MSNBC contributor Mike Barnacle, Donnie Deutsch is with us, also NBC News national political reporter Heidi Prisbilla, and MSNBC political analyst, former chairman of the Republican National Committee and wearer of outstanding zip mm. up sweaters. <laughs> Michael Heal. Joe and Mika out on assignment this morning and they will be back tomorrow. Mike, we've reached the point now where the Coast Guard is telling its contractors to look into babysitting jobs, yeah. to look into dog walking, and to have garage sales. That was a posting on one of their websites because of the government shutdown. All admirable occupations, yep. really. I don't know how much they pay by the hour, but uh, that's, where, that's what we've been reduced to. That, in addition to the other outstanding question that was just raised by the clip we showed, where? Who invited him to give a commencement speech? I just asked the same. That was in 2004, some time ago. Well, President Trump is scheduled to visit a border patrol station in McAllen, Texas today, despite his reported misgivings about that trip. The New York Times reports that he told a group of television anchors, quote, it's not going to change a damn thing, but I'm still going. In his Oval Office address on Tuesday night, the president told the nation he is ready to negotiate. But yesterday, he abruptly ended a White House meeting. This situation could be solved in a 45-minute meeting. I have invited congressional leadership to the White House tomorrow to get this done. We saw a temper tantrum because he couldn't get his way, and he just walked out of the meeting. The president walked into the room, passed out candy. He brought a little candy for everybody. I asked him to open up the government, that tomorrow so many people will have trouble paying their mortgages, paying their bills, dealing with situations when they don't get paid. I saw Schumer continue to raise his voice. I said, just why won't you do that? We'll continue to discuss. We're willing to discuss anything. The Democratic leaders are unwilling to even negotiate. And he said, you, if I open up the government, you won't do what I want. The president then turned to the speaker and politely asked her, okay, Nancy, if we open the government up in 30 days, could we have border security? She raised her hand and said, no, not at all. He asked uh, Speaker Pelosi, will you agree to my wall? She said, no. The president calmly.
Can't hear you. Joining me now is actor, comedian, writer on the original Roseanne and Roseanne Barr's ex-husband, Tom Arnold. Tom, thanks for being with us. Sorry it's under these yeah. circumstances. I'm wondering, first, when you saw Roseanne's tweets yesterday, I'm just wondering what went through your mind. Were you surprised? Well, I, I, I was not surprised uh, that uh, what went down and, the, and that the show was canceled. I, I had a feeling this was going to happen to... When I first heard it was coming back, that there was a reboot. And, uh, you thought this might, actually, might happen. Why? Yeah. Um, I, I just know, uh, I, 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 when I heard about her politics, I knew she was a, a, when I read her social media in the very beginning and I saw how she was so into the conspiracy stuff with Donald Trump and so how far gone she was and the, the Pizzagate and, uh, uh, Hillary's a pedophile and Obama wasn't born here and she was, you know, a, a birther and how crazy that was. I just knew that this would not end well. Did, did so? You were surprised. Were you surprised then um, that ABC chose to bring it back? Because obviously they saw those tweets as well. Right. I was surprised that they didn't do anything about it. In fact, I, I tweeted a lot because, uh, you know, I figured someone would take her phone away or 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 monitor that because that's a it's dangerous. You know, when you have that much money on a show, it's a you know they, we had the first amendment. We also had the second amendment, but you don't just give someone a handgun to walk around the. The stage there, you gotta. Well, hopefully you don't. You gotta be careful. That's they risked a lot, and yeah. I, I, I tweeted a lot to watch out because I can see it coming. Because she, you know, has a lot of. By the way, this this monkey thing is something she's tweeted before about black people. Why is it okay? It's a meme that, that she and thousands of her alt right uh, fans do. They love calling black people monkeys. It's not a one time joke. Okay. Yeah, she said something about because, Susan Rice a couple of years ago, right. referencing. Well, no, but there, well. there's more. Look at her tweet. We they do it because we have a white trash racist president. That's a fact. When, that is Donald Trump is, and we, Roseanne and I both noted 30 years. That's an absolute fact. And instead of saying Donald Trump going, okay, everybody, hold on together, he says, oh my gosh, what about me? That's insane. That he's like, well, what about people making fun of me? How about stopping? When you were married to to Roseanne, I mean, you also worked with her on the original Roseanne show. Yeah. Did she display any signs of you know racism or xenophobia or conspiracy theory kind of beliefs? When I when I met Roseanne, I I I just worked at a meatpacking plant for three years in Iowa, and she was a little older and uh, and, and she was a feminist. I never met a feminist even. She was so much more evolved than I was. I mean, I was a a meat packer and a, and a bouncer and a young comic. And I learned so much from her about, you know, about not just being a liberal, but about that kind of, of thinking. You know, I never, I grew up in Southeast Iowa, so I'd never been around different kinds of people. So what so, do you think I mean, it is that, that changed her? I mean, because clearly you're, what you're saying is the person you knew uh, when you first met her and when you were married uh, obviously, you know, she's talked about uh, mental health issues before, well, mental, you know, but, yeah. but, but uh, these conspiracy theories and obviously these, these racist uh, statements. What well, do you I think mean, here's the thing. I, uh, you know, I, I have uh, mental health issues myself. Roseanne obviously does. It's something that, you know, right before we got married, I went to rehab. Uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm an alcohol and uh, a drug uh, uh, in recovery for both of those. She was there for me. 
And then after uh, we got married, you know, we dealt with her mental health issues as a family. And she, she's done amazing with that. And, you know, it's, it's something that she's dealt with. And I can see that. And the thing about, I have to say this about, about the president we have and his gaslighting and lying. You can see him perpetuating mental health issues for the entire country. Every day he gets on TV and lies. And he, and he perpetuates fear and anxiety. He never says things are great. He says, oh, my gosh, look how dangerous it is in the inner city and black people. And I really genuinely believe he thinks black people are dangerous and so, Mexicans are rapists. He believes that. He's, as we perpetuate that fear to America, watch out. Uh, Mueller's lying. He's after me. And so Americans are sitting home like Roseanne and her fans are like, oh, my God, what is happening out there? And they get anxiety. And they have anyone with mental health uh, issues like Roseanne. It's going gonna, it's gonna to heighten things, and, and she's having mental health, health issues right now, and I'm sure that's part of this. It doesn't make it okay. Yeah, yeah. They had to cancel the show. You told, you told The Hollywood Reporter today that, that Roseanne, in your view, may have wanted the show to be canceled. A hundred percent. Why do you think that is? I mean, is, I think you were intimating the, in the interview that, you know, she does something, it's successful, and, and she's not happy with it, or she feels she's being mistreated or something. Is that, why well, do you I think she like, wanted it canceled? Well, I feel from day one, you know, she didn't get created by credit on her own show. So, so when I, from, which is, uh, what was not her fault. Obviously, she deserved it. So from day one on the Roseanne show, you know, she felt like, okay, I'm not getting, you know, so there's always been that. So I feel like, you know, that she, Probably, you know, I, and, and as I'm watching this happen, by the way, I keep, as she keeps sabotaging things, when the Parkland kids, she called one of them the Nazi, and then they had to take it down. So she throws Nazi around a lot. So I'm talking to uh, my former stepkids, who I love, and, you know, they're suffering through this. So I look at it like, as this is going on, like, also, I, I, once you have stepkids, you always see them as kids, even though they're 40, and you know they're suffering. So yeah. you see this thing happening pub publicly. So I, I'm like, I tell them, listen, I, first of all, I would love it if she came out and said, okay, I'm sorry, I've gotten too into this thing. Maybe I need to step back. And maybe her fans would see this. I wanted one Donald Trump supporter, one person that's all in on all this conspiracy, Hillary's a pedophile, Obama's whatever, to say, wait a minute, maybe that's not true. Maybe everything Trump says is not true. You know, well, just you know, for the whole country to say. But anyway, so as this weekend approached, I can see it coming. I can see things going. And I tweeted at Wanda Sykes because Wanda Sykes was like, impeach Trump. And I said, hey, it's too bad you aren't on a TV show. She's the head writer of Roseanne. It's too bad you aren't on a TV show and you can do something about it. It's none of my business, but I stuck it in there. And then, and then Roseanne put a picture of Hillary Clinton as, and next to a donkey with buck teeth. But I, for some reason, she did that. And I said to Roseanne's daughter, your mom needs to have apologized to Hillary Clinton. Well, I know you, to, you, were trying to, that, you were hoping that somebody in her life would, would basically kind of intervene, take, uh, kind of get, get, take her off Twitter. I, I got to get a quick break in, Tom. If you could just stick around. I want to talk to you uh, yeah. on the other side of this. We'll be right back. We're back now talking with Tom Arnold, Roseanne Barr's uh, ex-husband. Appreciate you uh, sticking around. Do you think that Roseanne has people in, in her orbit right now uh, who, you know, who can kind of intercede, who can maybe get her off Twitter or help her out in terms of, of how she should move forward from this? Uh, they, I hope they're fired today. Uh, I, I, you know, I, again, I have been there 24 years. I, uh, you know, I... Today, uh, obviously, they know, obviously, but I, I sense that today after something like that, that maybe uh, the people close ranks. And, you know, I know her 
Sun did as good a job as humanly possible of taking down stuff on, on Twitter and trying to keep, you know, our kids are amazing kids. They do everything humanly possible, you know, and they love their moms so much. And, uh, you know, maybe this is for the best, the family to pull together now and just be a family. And so I, you know, there's nobody, there's no, you know, other people, somebody could have done, I, you know, there's a million things I was offering. I said, listen, you know, say, say, tell your mom that Donald Trump doesn't carry his own phone. He has a dude do it. And he thinks of the tweets and another guy, he's so important. He has another guy type it. And then she won't carry her own phone. Hmm. You know, like, or have a fake phone. I, there's a way to do a phone that goes into another server. I had a whole bunch of ideas.